0: What exactly is a sensory diet and how can it help prevent sensory overload? Tune in as we share how to meet your child's sensory needs through this stress reducing technique. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing, Embracing autism. autism. Welcome back, Embracers. We are talking about sensory diet today.
1: So I hope everyone is hungry.
0: <laughs> That's so weird because a diet means you're avoiding, like you're reducing your intake. Yeah,
1: but sometimes diets can be
0: <laughs> delicious. Oh, no. No. They are never delicious. Off topic though, (laughs) this sensory diet is definitely not delicious. It would be weird if it was. (laughs) I uh, feel like my experience with parents of autistic kids has been that most people don't know what a sensory diet is or have not heard of a sensory diet. So we're going to go over what that is and what that entails a little bit and then just give some examples of how to incorporate those and a little bit of how I kind of do it myself. Not really formally. I didn't go through an occupational therapist but the principle of it I follow for my own sensory stuff. A sensory diet is pretty much a way to help your kid who's struggling with sensory overload. It's basically a plan that you put together. Typically with an occupational therapist, you don't really want to do it by yourself because if not done properly, you can actually have the opposite effect and basically just throw your kid's sensory system out of whack. So it's really best to do it with an occupational therapist who knows their stuff and have them help you put together a sensory diet. It's a plan that is made custom-made for your child's specific very specific sensory needs. And they'll do things like incorporate a bunch of different physical activities or put into place certain accommodations to help your child meet their sensory needs.
1: So I think when we were going through the list, one of the ones that I remember was like for our youngest, it's, do we think she'd be okay playing with like shaving cream? Oh, how does she like water play? So like different things that would like test different sensory feedback, I guess, and making sure like obviously she would be comfortable with it and it wouldn't be something that would be like terrifying her.
0: The reason that we ended up doing a sensory diet with our youngest one is because she's the one who had a bigger trouble or difficulty with self-regulation. So our oldest one. Definitely had a bunch of sensory issues, and we had a hard time with her just getting her to touch things. So with her, it was a lot of kind of like exposure therapy, honestly. And I mean,
1: it's still an ongoing effort. Today, we still have exposure to different things that she's uncomfortable with, but willing to go along with.
0: <laughs> yeah, like today we were playing with balloons. balloons. <laughs> <laughs> she's still scared of balloons unless we can kind of transition her into them. But it's because of the fear of the noise that they could make if they pop. So it's kind of like a sensory auditory thing. But the youngest one, she had a lot of that like motion seeking stuff and she was the one who was like a headbanger and she had all of this like physical stuff. And so with her, we really needed to work closely with an occupational therapist to put together a sensory diet plan because it was out of control. So it was really important. That's where we first learned about this was actually through her. So I'm just going to give you a general overview of what a sensory diet could potentially look like and different areas that they tackle. But this is something that would be very specific to your child and is something that you would create closely with an occupational therapist. So anything that I say here might not necessarily apply to your child. You have to get it custom tailored to them. It's an individualized plan and there are different activities that you can do for sensory diet. They're each trying to address a specific sensory system. These activities will vary dependent upon your child's age and their abilities. So my oldest kid had more physical delays and physical challenges. So there's certain activities that she wouldn't have been able to do that my youngest could do. So that's another reason why it has to be custom tailored to your kid. Depending on your kid's age, some things may be appropriate for them that wouldn't be for a different age. But one of the first things that we looked at is the proprioception. That's basically the body awareness part. That was one that our kid really struggled with. So we had to do a bunch of stuff that involved heavy work which we mentioned in a previous episode I think it was probably the season about the senses maybe?
1: Probably it makes sense
0: We talked about this in a previous episode about heavy work and this is stuff that involves you having to basically use your strength or your muscles. It's things like pushing heavy things, pulling heavy things lifting things and so something that could be part of the sensory diet if you feel like your child needs that sort of input is things like pushing a stroller or a cart and sometimes Sometimes we would put like a little weighted ball in it, or maybe load it with a couple of books or something like that. You could do like a wagon, or one that we were recommended to was like carrying a backpack with like books and stuff in it. But the important thing was not to overload it, so you're not right. trying to yeah. put your kid through boot camp. <laughs> and
1: that's what I was gonna say it's heavy to the child, not to you. So, like, I think she was two at the time for her spinning like a rocking chair, a swivel chair in a circle was considered heavy work because like the chair was massive and it, it had a little bit of stick to it. So, for For her, that was heavy, but for anyone, a normal adult, it was just a chair.
0: Yeah. When they say heavy work, it gives you the impression that it means you want to put something that's actually heavy in there. That's not the case. You don't want it to be like they're struggling to move. It's honestly very lightly heavy. It would
1: be productive, I think.
0: Think about what they say in the gym when you're trying to like tone. It's like, it's about the reps, not the weight. <laughs> think about there it that go. way it's about the reps, not the weight. <laughs> there you go. So, you just want them to go around like carrying a backpack, or you can play games with them if they're the type who like games, things like hopscotch or helping with chores around the house, like pushing a vacuum if they're not like our kid who's terrified of vacuums.
1: And I think for ours, I think they probably had something regarding like climbing, I think, or at least for our oldest, because she struggles with kind of the low muscle tone. So, for hers, it might have been like going up the stairs three times in a row or something. It challenges her, but it's not something that would overwhelm her or put her at any type of risk for any type of injury or anything else along those lines.
0: Right. Like our oldest has hypotonia, so we would treat her differently than we would with our youngest. For our youngest in her sensory diet, part of the plan was to have her wear a weighted vest that we got to borrow from the OT. But that's something that would be totally inappropriate for our oldest because she has a really weak core and she already has difficulty kind of holding herself up. She
1: would probably just lie down on the ground at that point.
0: (laughs) That would just be torture. (laughs) So again, that's why it's like you really have to make sure that if you look into it, you are custom tailoring it with an occupational therapist who knows how to do this without inadvertently harming your child.
1: And obviously, I mean, as far as like the timeline of how long they're actually doing these activities for, I'm not exactly sure what the recommendation, I mean, I'm sure it's different for each activity that they're doing but obviously check with a ot to make sure that they're not wearing a vest longer than whatever like the 15 minute guideline is
0: from personal experience proprioception is a big one for me because i'm very much so like a weighted blanket person and i definitely need that like deep pressure so matt i'm sure you could contest when i've been kind of stressed out and anxious what is it that i ask you to do
1: Put more rocks in your backpack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like you're going to push me in the ocean.
1: (laughs) No, we're doing heavy work. Carry more things around the house. (laughs) Deep pressure.
0: Basically, I just ask him to like kind of smush me. (laughs) like a like a sandwich (laughs) well i was thinking of your
1: weighted blankets too i guess yeah
0: well i have the weighted blankets (laughs) but when i don't want to use those because they're not enough what's 50 pounds when i could have what a couple (laughs) yeah like 200 pounds i will basically seek that out (laughs) and i know it sounds ridiculous but it honestly is like really soothing and it's kind of funny because i'm four foot eleven but still it's really like comforting to have that smush feeling and I think that's why I need so much in a weighted blanket. It does shock your system back into like normalcy. Once I'm using my blankets or anything that's weighted or pressured, Afterwards, I feel a lot more regulated than before because it kind of gives me that sensory feedback that I need. It shocks my system back into normalcy, I guess.
1: Makes you happy. Yeah.
0: So proprioception is a big one for me. The other one that's similar that I would consider probably in the same family is the vestibular system which is more of the sense of movement. That's also the one that our youngest really struggled with. So with vestibular, some of the things that we would do with her was incorporate swinging motions. One of them is a hammock swing that we purchased for her. So she's able to use the hammock to swing herself back and forth. When she was younger, we had to rock her. But now that she's older, she's kind of figured out how to do it. We've also incorporated silly things like dancing, breaks, or we did a little bit of that toddler yoga, those little videos on YouTube, remember that? Yeah,
1: she was surprisingly good. Yeah. She also has like a little trampoline too. So of course, any bouncing or anything like
0: that. Yeah. So we try to incorporate movement as much as possible. And then we always have in her room options for her to do. So if she has a nap or something like that, we always leave like a little mini trampoline in there or a swing or something so that if she needs to get a sensory break, she can. And for me, I experience these things similarly, but I don't obviously have the problem like a kid does, where you can't figure out what's going on. So you can't really self-accommodate. So as an adult, I definitely have a lot of the vestibular stuff when it comes to needing to like swing or rock. I always need to kind of have a little bit of motion going on. And whether that's rocking in a chair or shifting my weight back and forth or something, I always try to incorporate movement into what I'm doing. And if it's like I'm going to be going into a tense situation like let's say it's a job interview where i clearly don't want to be like rocking during a job interview usually what i'll do is like when i'm in the bathroom or something getting myself ready or whatever i might get the wiggles out there and do like a quick "Ah," shiver or whatever and just like get it out of my system and then i go and then i'm like oh no that didn't happen nobody nobody saw that
1: (laughs) (laughs) i already wiggled earlier
0: nobody knows no
1: i was gonna say it's funny because you were talking about that and i was like oh that's cute like you have the same setup as like our youngest so it's like oh like if you wake up in the middle of the night, it's like oh you have your rocking chair right there. You can get like a little rock back and forth, and then go back to sleep.
0: Yes. <laughs> Except with jobs. Whenever you do have a job as an adult, you are able to accommodate by having physical therapy balls in replacement of your office chair. So with those, you can get those sensory breaks because if you need a movement break, you can just bounce on them. I know it looks a little silly. Well,
1: I'll just say the hilarious thing is, then you can just brush it off as like for the health benefit of not needing like the chair because yeah. I want to work on like my core. I'll just be like
0: yeah, oh no, I'm just doing this because studies indicate that oh a chair is bad for your back. And yeah, everyone's just like oh my gosh,
1: I didn't realize you so health conscious. I know.
0: Oh, f- yeah. See, the only thing is, mm. clearly because of my outward appearance, they're not going to buy it's, that. It's
1: all about confidence. <laughs> all about the outward
0: appearance. <laughs> I'll just pretend I'm super fit. There you go. That's how I get those movement breaks in. I don't do the thing like jumpy jacks. It's not like I'm going to get up from my chair in the middle of work and be like, excuse me, hold that thought and do like 20 jumpy jacks in front of like a client.
1: <laughs> That's because you're a quitter.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not so, fully committed. Yeah, but I would have put it past our youngest. I feel like she would just jump up and down in the middle of your sentence.
1: That's true because she does now.
0: So including these sorts of like sensory breaks, the way that you do it in a sensory diet is try to find a more appropriate time to incorporate that before the time where you think your kid is going to need it. So there's a lot of observation of like, okay, well, when are the times of day that they tend to be the ansiest or they tend to be the most hyper? And what they do is they try to figure out when they're doing that. And then before that happens, they try to build in a time like an hour or so before that happens to put a sensory break that will kind of target that area before that. If your kid, every day at around noon, they start running laps around the house, then they might say, okay, then we know that at least like an hour before noon, we should incorporate a little activity where they're doing jumping jacks or dancing or whatever before they get there. And then that way they are able to kind of exert that energy and that sensory area. And then they don't feel the need to do that later on.
1: And that's why we notice that it's absolutely critical for our youngest. So if we have her working on any type of activity, We have to make sure that she's doing some type of motion prior, otherwise she's not going to be able to want to sit still.
0: Even during certain activities, we still have to incorporate it with motion to get her to do it because she really can't focus if she has all this like pent up energy. That's true. The next one is the tactile sense, and that's light touch, texture, temperature, vibration, pain. That also includes deep pressure, but it's a little bit different reasons. The proprioception one is more like body space awareness, which is why I like the sensory blankets and stuff, because that's like an all-encompassing body and space thing. But for tactile, it can just be like a hand squeeze or a foot squeeze or things like that some kids really like hand massages our kid really hated them
1: <laughs> well yeah i was gonna say hand massages, hand massages yes but like our oldest she loves having her back massage or like if you like trace her face she loves that
0: she likes light touches right or yeah. if you
1: pretend like, like your hand is like a spider going up her arm like she loves those things
0: that's so funny though because i'm the polar opposite I, I hate light touches but
1: she, she like giggles and laughs and is like again again
0: <laughs> yeah she will do that and that will kind of give her a sense of calm we We basically learned that when our kid was having issues with not wanting to touch certain textures or things like that, one of the things that we practiced was kind of doing some of this tactile sensory diet stuff for her before the activity was expected. So, if we knew she had to do an activity where she had to, for example, hold a pencil, and she was really averse at the time to holding any sort of tools, she wouldn't hold a paintbrush, she wouldn't hold like a spoon or a spatula, like nothing. So, what we used to do is they would call it priming, and it's basically you kind of like prime the senses by giving it a little bit of like a jump start with some sort of tapping lightly of her hands, having her clap her hands, having her wiggle her hands, or do silly things to kind of get the energy in her fingers and hands going. And then what that would do was get them primed for the next touch activity. So since they've already been touching themselves a little bit, those neurons and stuff were already firing. And so they were less hypersensitive to the activity that she was going to do. So that allowed us to move her into that activity with less issue than we had before.
1: Right. And also the goal a little bit is kind of creating a positive environment or a positive image of whatever that task is. So she's not, or she wasn't great with holding like a pencil, but if you can show her, Oh, the the first time that you're holding a pencil, everything was okay. And there wasn't anything that bad happened. Then the next time that she's trying to like hold the pencil, she has a great memory. So she'll remember back to the first time that she held it. And it's kind of like, okay, like it wasn't terrible. It was my favorite thing to do, but it's not hopefully going to be any worse. So you're kind of building upon that last experience.
0: Yeah, you never throw them in cold turkey. You always want this to be kind of like a slow transition that's on their terms. And they're the one in the driver's seat, and making sure that you're keeping an eye for how comfortable they are in the situation rather than pushing them into it when they're not ready, because that can have the opposite effect and really deregulate them and cause them to have a meltdown. So (laughs) this is why we say make sure if you do this, look into a sensory diet, make sure it's with an occupational therapist. With tactile, one of the ones that I also do here is playing with therapy putty like that is like my favorite favorite thing in the world
1: (laughs) and you don't share do you
0: no i don't share my youngest one's always trying to steal my putty and i'm like no you have play-doh give me my putty
1: (laughs) maybe she wants to build a castle with you
0: she gets stuff stuck in it and it's so (laughs) gross there's like hair in it and all sorts of stuff and i'm like no she's three i know but it's my (laughs) putty. Um, But the putty, basically, it's kind of like a way to get that sensory input. If I really feel like I need to have some of that physical feedback, I will get sensory putty breaks all the time. I can anticipate that I will be needing that if I'm in a higher stress environment or if I'm in a higher focused need environment, then I might go and preemptively get my putty because I know I'm going to need it.
1: And you have more than one. So if for some reason the youngest one takes it, you can play with the one putty to help you because you're stressed out trying to find the other one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's like the cycle of putty. The next system is the auditory system, and that's how we hear and listen to things. This area of the sensory diet might be like having some ideas on how to calm or organize your auditory input. This one's a big one for me as well because I am very auditory sensitive. I have to kind of regulate this area quite often. And the way that I do that is kind of two ways. One of them is when I'm getting like sensory overload. I I tend to preemptively use noise canceling headphones Primarily using AirPods Pro. We got them because I really needed that noise cancellation mode. And it is a lifesaver.
1: Not that we have an ad or anything with them.
0: (laughs) No, we definitely don't. (laughs) I am not that popular. (laughs) But I would definitely be using them anytime that I feel like the environment's getting too out of control. We've actually been talking about how I probably should be bringing them to church now because the service is like sometimes unpredictably loud. So that's definitely one that I've used. Another one that I've used is listening to music and like nature sounds mixed with music for like soothing type of stuff. So if I'm trying to go to bed, remember for the longest time, do you remember what track I was using that would knock me out when I had insomnia? Was it the whale one? Yeah, it was like the blue. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's really <laughs> annoying. No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> it did not sound like that. It was like the, um. gosh, I think it's like the blue whale. It's like the one that has the really deep sound. I don't know, something about that. It's like a really deep like bass kind of sound. And that knocked me out. And that's saying something because I have pretty hardcore insomnia. That's true.
1: But I think that's where like the girls get it too because they listen to classical like classical piano music as they're trying to fall asleep and during naps as well to kind of like get them into kind of more of a like soothing state of mind.
0: It could just be that I was attracted to it because it sounded like you're snoring. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes to drown it out. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a way to kind of do it. Some kids are also into certain songs that might be helpful. Our kids get into these like cycles where they're really into one song and that one song will really calm them down. I think the oldest one, it was like Moana for the longest time. Okay. That's true.
1: That's a classic.
0: If your kid is into any sort of that audio stuff, sometimes giving them like an audio break, where maybe they get to listen to their favorite song or something like that before an event that you know might be sensory overload, can help them kind of prime themselves for that event. And
1: now that we know that YouTube can loop videos, so you don't have to keep like rewinding it each time, it just like plays the exact yes.
0: same thing. Yes, parenting hack. If you didn't oh, know gosh, that already, yeah. YouTube does have a feature where you can just click loop, and it'll loop for you, so you don't yep. have to replay it a hundred times. Yeah. Uh, the next is the visual system. And this is kind of one of those areas where some kids experience visual overload, where colors might be too bright, things might be too visually stimulating, if there's just like too much going on. It's honestly ironic to me that the autism symbol uses bright colors. I know that when we talked to Thomas McKean in our interview, Embracing Autism IRL, he said they chose the bright colors because the brightness, I think, indicated hope, right? Right. I think that's what he said. But I just find it ironic because bright colors are like the one thing that a lot of autistics are unable to handle. It's like one of those things that like sends their sensory system off. I've noticed for me that I definitely tend to gravitate towards muted colors. Like, all the colors I've ever picked in my life for clothing, wall decor, paint, all that stuff. It's always been either pastels or earth tones. I've never liked bright colors and I never really thought there was a reason behind it, but I just always found them to be like loud and like annoying. But I just thought, well, Everyone did. Well, the
1: interesting thing is like uh, for our oldest, her, for right now, her favorite color is red. I'm not sure if that'll ever change. And we went to Home Depot to have her pick out like, <laughs> the little paint cards to see like, oh, what color red is like your favorite color? And it's like the like brightest thing. Like, gosh, if you put a coat of that on your wall, oh my gosh. Like, I
0: know. That... <laughs> it's like you're in a crime scene. Oh my gosh.
1: And then, I mean, the youngest one also, her favorite color is orange. So like, I feel like those are a little bit kind of brighter more more extreme colors I'm not like as muted I mean orange can be more muted but it seems like the colors they're picking out were definitely a bit brighter
0: (laughs) yeah but it makes sense because she the oldest one she was the one who could see the color blue and white light like she definitely she experiences color clearly very differently from us so maybe it makes sense as to why she would be attracted to that if she's seeing colors differently she is also the one that's very artistic so she's super into painting and all that. So she might just appreciate colors more than us. I don't really know because I'm the polar opposite. I can't stand bright colors. So
1: you're going to hate painting her room like the bright red.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, well, the visual system is also the one that is responsible for the issue with fluorescent lighting. So like I also have the issues with the fluorescent lights. I also have issues with like visual clutter and that's part of it. It's sensing the world to be visually busy. And that's part of the reason I don't like crowds because it's visually very busy for me and it kind of like stresses me out so I know our girls feel that way too (laughs) well I was
1: gonna say the clutter doesn't seem to bother them because I mean oh no definitely not the clutter disaster zones (laughs) but the
0: crowds they do not like crowds either they're always kind of like hiding from crowds yeah I guess that's true so part of a sensory diet might help in this area to create an area that is kind of reducing the visual stimulation so if your kid does struggle in this area part of what they might do in a sensory diet is help you plan to keep certain areas organized or clutter free they might help you come up with a plan to like store things in bins or boxes so that your kid can't see them or avoiding certain light like fluorescent lights and then using neutral paint colors assuming that they were like the oversensitive like me now if they're the undersensitive like our kids they might say the opposite they might say like oh use some bright paint yeah that's true now the last two senses for the sensory diet that we have left are smell and taste and they're kind of co-related because just depends if you're doing food that's going to involve both things with the smell i remember this was season one i think that i mentioned that there was that like autism smell test i mentioned it that oh was that's right that was you work. i'm surprised you remember that because <laughs> yeah. i don't remember. <laughs> Yeah. So with the smell, there's like certain odors that can stimulate certain feelings. So there's certain ones that can give a sense of calm, or there can be certain odors that really trigger an autistic person. When it comes to these smells, one of the things that you want to do with your kid potentially is explore different calming scents. We mentioned that experiment or that little activity that you could do in that episode in season one. It's basically like finding a bunch of different scents to explore with your kid, maybe get some lavender, some vanilla maybe throw in like rose, maybe different scents and just have them explore the scents and see how do they react to those? Do they really like some? Do they really dislike others? Because if you can find one that is calming, then if you feel like they might be getting into kind of meltdown territory, a preventative measure for that sensory break is maybe have a candle that scented that scent that is calming to them and have it nearby. And if they feel like they need that sensory break, let them like just take a little whiff of the candle beforehand and just kind of like meditate on it for a little bit you know what's
1: interesting like both of our girls i don't think they've really mentioned like a problem with the smell with the exception of like the cinnamon like air spray
0: oh yeah they hate that don't they <laughs> they
1: do <laughs> they voiced it and i was like wow you've never voiced it like a because they're like oh it smells like gross or icky or whatever yeah. and i was like wow they've never voiced like a concern for like a smell like ever like they're like completely like oblivious for the most part and i was like okay like good you guys are not a fan of whatever cinnamon that was
0: yeah it's like artificial cinnamon the stuff right. that they use for like the holidays yeah, yeah that's something 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 that you can do with your kid and then avoid sense that, you know, feel icky to them, essentially. Avoid the senses that you think might send them into sensory overload and then expose them or have on standby the ones that would help them self-regulate. And the same thing goes for taste. That's basically being able to have different tastes available for your kids. So if your kid is undersensitive, you might want to expose them to strong tastes. That's what we experienced with our oldest child. She was obsessed with lemons. She still is obsessed with lemons. She will take a lemon and eat the entire thing. Like there's literally nothing left, no pulp, nothing except for the skin.
1: But that was actually helpful when we started thinking like, okay, what are other things that kind of like shock your like taste buds a little bit? So like we found like, oh, she also, likes like pickles or whatever like oh very like salty
0: raw onions oh Oh my gosh banana
1: peppers like she's actually a fan of these just pepperoni Pepperoni. very like intense flavors that like your typical like four-year-old wouldn't be like oh banana peppers and raw onions like <laughs> oh
0: no yeah she definitely likes those like extreme flavors she's the polar opposite of me and i think our youngest is more like me we are like really cautious with the flavors that we like we like really like mild things that don't have much of a kick we don't really like rocking the boat too much i definitely am the type of person that am like gonna stay with safe foods for some kids it might be that the safer foods are like crunchy foods. And I definitely feel like that's been the case for our kids.
1: She definitely kind of sides more bland or like sweet. She has more of a sweet tooth, I think.
0: Yeah. So as part of a sensory diet, part of the plan could be helping create breaks for them to have these sensory breaks with the oral aspect. So if your kid was like ours, who was going around chewing all sorts of things that they shouldn't be chewing or they experienced pica, you might instead give them options like the jewelry, the chewy tubes, things like that. Honestly, those didn't work great for our kids. But you can also do foods that serve a similar purpose purpose like a pretzel rod
1: i think yeah i think we have more luck with actual food and not like the the chew tubes. so like we had mentioned like the pretzel rod and even like the crushed ice i mean they still love ice
0: yeah so if your kid is into that one of the things that we tried to were like beef jerky or like slim jims Mm. i'm surprised she wasn't into that because she's so into pepperoni
1: she might be now we can
0: Yeah. introduce it. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing. Our kids' taste buds like change over time and things that she never would have tried like a year or two ago, she now loves. So that's why I always say to keep trying when it comes to these sorts of exposures. Like if you're taking out your kid to a store once and they have a meltdown, try again later, you never know. It's the same thing with sensory stuff. If you feel like they're really averse to something, you can try again in a couple months, a couple weeks, whatever you feel is right for your kid and see if they still are because they might surprise you. I know our kids have.
1: Yeah, I think with the sensory diet, I mean, it makes sense to do it because you're almost like stacking the deck a little bit in your favor because if you are able to figure out what are the different items regarding sensory input that they dislike and like, and you're able to work towards those, if you have that just kind of on a mental list on hand, you can definitely use that to your advantage to try and get them to kind of regulate better so it's not like you're jumping from like one meltdown to like a difficult transition. You can try and like work with them in the different categories to kind of make everything flow a little smoother.
0: So I know that was like a whole lot of information. I know like for me personally, I haven't had to do a formal sensory diet with an occupational therapist because as an adult, I can kind of figure that out myself. I've been basically just self-accommodating and I incorporate these sensory breaks into my life, especially when I feel like I'm going to need it. So the key is really anticipating that need and not waiting until After a meltdown happens or not waiting until after the overload starts, it's really trying to figure out the pattern in advance and then build something as kind of like a precaution so that before that happens, you've already given your child the opportunity to explore that sensory need. So if you feel like this is something that might be of interest to you or might work for your child, again, I would just recommend you go and bring this up with an occupational therapist and they can work to customize a plan for you. And I really think that it would help because it's helped us out quite a bit with our kid.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it would definitely be beneficial to anyone who is struggling with, I mean, any of these sensory uh, inputs.
0: And that's pretty much all we have for this episode. I did want to mention before we go, though, we do have a new partnership with luckykid.com. That's L-A-K-I-K-I-D.com. We have a promotion that you can use. It's a code autismwish15 for 15% off on their website. And they have a ton of awesome sensory items. I honestly think it's perfect for this episode because they've got a lot of sensory things that can help with like weighted lap pads or little fidgets, just things that can help incorporate into a sensory diet plan for your child so that they have breaks. One of the favorites that we had was this water lap pad that basically is a weighted lap pad, but you can have this pen that has water in it and it's refillable. Your kid can doodle on the lap pad, but because it's water, it's not messy.
1: Yeah, they can color and do whatever on the lap pad. And then if they happen to go off, it's just water on whatever. So like the kids were like wanting to like draw on us and it's like, okay, sure, you can draw with water on my skin or whatever. Like I don't really mind. But no, they definitely love it.
0: If you're interested in that, it is luckykid.com, L-A-K-I-K-I-D.com. You can use our promo code AutismWish15. Full disclosure, Autism Wish would get a portion of the proceeds from that portion, but that's just going to help us keep our studio lights running and keep our programs going so we would really appreciate it and i really like that lap pad so honestly i would have gotten it no matter what
1: yep definitely better than markers on the walls
0: definitely makes road trips easier (laughs) (laughs) thanks for tuning in everyone and we will chat with you again next week all right have a good one bye bye to review we discussed that a sensory diet is a great way to help your child avoid sensory overload It's critical that you work closely with an occupational therapist to determine when and how to incorporate sensory breaks throughout your child's day so as not to inadvertently trigger your child's sensory system. Lastly, we noted the importance of understanding your child's sensory profile as engaging in customized sensory experiences regularly can help your child feel less anxious and more in control. Come back next week as we discuss one of the most frustrating aspects of autism, communication. We take a closer look at how communication is impacted in autism and answer questions such as, what does it feel like to experience communication struggles? What are some social consequences autistics face due to miscommunications? What can be done to reduce the burden autistics experience of constantly being misunderstood? This is Embracing Autism.